I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. This week, we're excited to welcome a special guest who we've been looking forward to talking to for a while. Dr. Heather Cox Richardson, author, professor of American history at Boston College. Her newsletter, Letters from an American, is a must read. And we'll put a link to that in our, uh, in our show notes. Her podcast, Now and Then, tackles how history informs the news of the week We'll link to both of them in the show notes. We wanted Heather's perspective on what's going on. She's also wrote a book on the history of the Republican Party to make men free. And I think I heard her as the first person I remember saying history doesn't repeat itself, but it sure does rhyme. It's really insightful. Uh, Heather, welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's really great to, to get on. We've been trying to do this for for a while, but uh, events often <laughs> overtook us. But listen, I I am a ferocious reader of Letters from America every morning, uh, and I can't recommend it more to our uh, to our listeners. Alex, uh, where do you want to start today? I think we have to talk first today about the Supreme Court nomination, which is now turning into a fight. Probably best way to put it. Really interesting comments today, the last couple of days, especially with uh, I think Senator Braun essentially trying to end interracial marriage. I think that's probably a good place to start. Heather, what's your take on what you've been seeing, or where where you where you think we are in, in all this? Well, I was very happy actually to see Senator Braun put things on the table the way he did. One of the things that has frustrated me enormously in studying American history, really since Herbert Hoover, is that until Hoover, people said what they meant. You know, they they you didn't have to like what they said, but they laid on the table what they were trying to do. And one of the things that has been enormously frustrating really since the Hoover administration on the side of the Republican Party was that they would say they were doing something and then they would do precisely the opposite. So, for example, we're going to protect families and, and we care deeply about the families. And at the same time, they would put that as a title to a law, for example, that did just the opposite. So it's really frustrating when you're trying to look at the way politics moves, to see politicians who say, oh, I would never touch all these different pieces of American jurisprudence, for example, that everybody really likes, when in fact, that's exactly what they're going to do. So when Braun put on the table last night that in fact, and this I believe is intellectually consistent, he was being very honest about this, that if in fact you were going to go after the the jurisprudence, 
if you are going to go after the underpinnings of Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision of the Supreme Court that protects a woman's right to abortion, that you would have to also go after all those other Supreme Court decisions that protect, for example, gay marriage or interracial marriage or the right of people to contraception or even segregation, because all of those things are based on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution which guarantees that all American citizens have equal protection of the laws and have equal protection of the laws and get the right to due process before their rights are taken away from them. And so for him to throw all that stuff out there, I really appreciate it because that's what's really on the table in this minute. Are we going to be using the federal government to protect everybody's right to equality and equality before the law in this country? Or are we in fact gonna to go to an older version of American democracy that said that the heart of democracy sat in the state legislatures and they could do whatever they wished, including, of course, limiting who got to vote. And that is exactly the formula by which we got human enslavement in the southern states before the Civil War. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the GOP is basically you now openly declaring war on civil rights and um, it's becoming more and more blatant about it and, and privacy rights at, 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 are now at the forefront. The one... Um, Thing. I mean, again, going back to what you're saying about how the Republicans haven't been straight, you know, talking out loud, you know, just basically putting it out there. You know, Mitch McConnell said that they wouldn't have an agenda or any kind of platform to put in front of the American people until after the election. And now we see Senator Braun and I guess Rick Scott, another one who's now talking about uh, openly about raising taxes on on everybody and, uh, um, and, and and just really starting to lay out a platform that's pretty clear for those that are willing to listen and hear what they're saying. So Rick Scott is the chair of the National Senatorial something something. Um, maybe somebody can look that up. I can never remember. It's it's an, one of those acronyms. Yeah, it's that lays out a leading the the Republicans in the 2022 election in the Senate. I think it is right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And he laid out an 11 point plan in which he is trying to describe what he believes the Republican Party should do going forward. And as you say, a Senate Minority Leader Mitch. McConnell has tried to say, oh, that's that's really not important. That's a that's somebody fringe talking about what we're going to do. Well, of course, Rick Scott is dead center of what the Republican Party is going to do. And what's important about that is that his 11-point plan does, in fact, have all these dog whistles and even bullhorns that we're seeing yeah. elsewhere. But it also has in it the other piece of this. Now, you and I were just focusing on civil rights, which is very much on the table now. But the reason that civil rights even got onto the table back in the 1930s, really, 1940s, 1950s, when the current... Um, ideology of this Republican Party really was taking shape was because the New Deal under Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Democrats started to regulate business and started to provide a basic social safety net and started to promote infrastructure. And one of the things that the current day Republican Party wants to do is to erase all that. They certainly want to erase the ability of the 
uh, government to protect civil rights, but they also want to go back to the period before the New Deal, before we had government regulation, before we had a basic social safety net, before we were raising taxes to put into things like electricity and telephones and all the sorts of modern conveniences that people really wanted in the middle of the 20th century. And that's what Scott's policy really highlights, is this idea that we shouldn't have what modern day Republicans call socialism, the idea of the government using tax money to provide basic goods for people, um, but that in fact, we need to turn everything over to big business. And that's very much what's at the heart of the 11 point plan. Yeah, no, it's pays and it's out loud. And of course, Mitch McConnell wanted to keep that all quiet and not have it come out till after the election. You, you know, uh, the one thing that I I definitely wanted to get to though was your recent interview with uh, with Joe Biden uh, with President Biden. I, I for one great get <laughs> uh, to make that happen. That's just amazing. Just to be clear, I, I, it was their idea, not mine. It would never in a million years have occurred to me to ask. No, well, it, well, yeah, but that says again. I think a lot about you and your voice and the historic perspective I, that I really cherish that uh, that you 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 bring to a lot of these things that are going on today that we don't quite some a lot of people don't quite grasp. And I was taken, um, you know, listening to the interview that you made the point that you know now President. Biden stands at, at this pivotal moment in our history and that what he does in this moment will reflect what the American people demand from his leadership. And I wanted you to to talk to that a little bit, uh, uh, because I do think in a lot of ways it's hard for me to imagine uh, who would be better prepared to be president of the United States in this moment. I mean, of those alive today and um, you, you know, and, and it would have run. But uh, I wanted to get your your perspective. Well, first of all, I think just to speak to the idea that they thought to ask me to interview him speaks to the moment we're in right now, because it's really not about me. It's about the fact that what I really do is take a look at the world and filter it for a community, a really big community mm -hmm. of people. And I'm answering their questions. And it's that recognition is a community of Americans who care deeply about this country and about what our government does uh, was embodied, I think, in them thinking, hey, that I might be somebody who was the it was worth the president talking to. But one of the things that jumps out to me about President Biden is that I always tell my students that America has lucked out in in a lot of a lot of uh in, in a lot of our presidents in a lot of times. So for example, George Washington did not want to be king. I mean, he really could have, but he decided to step down after two, uh, after two terms. And FDR died before he used to be a dictator, you know, because he was, he'd keep going until the present if he could have. There are a lot of times when we happen to luck out. We've also had some really bad luck. Andrew Johnson should never have become president. James Buchanan, let's not go there. I mean, there's plenty of times when we have had bad luck. But when we were thinking about a president for this moment, I don't know about you, I was not thinking about, gee, the person we really need to have in the White House right now is somebody who has more experience in foreign affairs than virtually any other lawmaker in America right now. 
And the fact that in this crucial moment of this fight between autocracy and democracy, when this is a global fight and there are so very many moving pieces, to have a man who has been on the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee since I believe 1974, although that's off the top of my head, I believe it was at least in the 1970s, who clearly has cared, cares very deeply about foreign affairs, has a knowledge of foreign affairs that it was has not really been paralleled since uh, Dwight Eisenhower, George H.W. Bush, of course, had been a director of the CIA and had been uh, an ambassador briefly and certainly knew what he was talking about. But, but Biden really understands foreign affairs. And to have him here at this moment, you know, I keep looking at what's happening in Ukraine and, uh, and what's happening with Vladimir Putin and all the many, many pieces moving around that. And and I think, had we not had this man in place when we did, and from the minute he got into office, he and his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, have worked incredibly hard to shore up alliances, to rebuild NATO, to inject more enthusiasm into the European Union, to pull Japan into a larger coalition. You know, these things are not things they invented, but they managed to recreate what uh, the former president had tried very hard to pull apart. And for them to have been able to do that in this yeah. moment, I actually spend not an insignificant amount of time thinking about what the world would have looked like if Biden had not had a chance to do that before Putin launched an attack on Ukraine. And what I see down the road is an even bigger fight than we're in right now, and one that certainly would have rivaled some of the greatest wars in global history in the past. And so I feel like this is a moment when it sure looks anyway, and of course, you know, we don't know how things are gonna come out, but in any case right now, it looks like we just absolutely lucked out with a man who knows what he's talking about in that particular field at this particular time. And what do you think is gonna get worse or the the, the battle that, that that's tougher in front of us? Uh, can you talk to that a little bit? Well, I was making two points there. One, I, I can't say what's going to happen in Ukraine and Russia. As historians like to say, we're prophets of the past, not yeah. of the future. And certainly there are many things that still could go even worse than they already are. But what I the, the, the other point that I was trying to make was if, in fact, the European Union, NATO, um, our allies in Australia and Japan and all the other countries that I am not putting on the table right now just because I'm tired and I'm not coming up with all the names. If they had not been able to pull together in this crucial moment, if there had not been these catastrophic economic sanctions, if there had yeah. not been um, the, the sorts of things that are, for example, going to make it probably likely that Russia is not going to be able to continue to fly planes because they're going to run out of spare parts. If they had not been able to do that and Putin had had yeah. a free hand in Ukraine the way it seemed that he was developing during the Trump administration, then you look at, at uh, the strengthening of autocracy under Vladimir Putin and his expansion into Belarus into Ukraine, into the places he had already expanded um, before that. Moldova, other places he would have gone, yeah. And then you look at trying to stop him then, right. it would have been a much harder sell to stop him then. So talking about, because uh, we talk about the, the fight between democracy and autocracy on the show. I mean, we were talking about it a lot for a long time, when back when people we're saying, what's autocracy even mean? What are you talking about? Um, but I think, you know, 
that that President Biden has been, you know, making the case repeatedly, you know, and asking and saying that we need to prove that democracies can compete with autocracies, um, you know, especially now you see these historical tr trends in our own country and now with obviously with what Putin's doing in in Ukraine, you know, sort of trends towards autocrats moving more aggressively. Where do you see that? I mean, can you, you know, put put some historical um, precedent for this where we has, has there been such a, a, a point in our history that the United States is, you know, we've gone through the turning points, as you suggested, but we've had these autocrats literally grabbing for power and, and, and pushing at the same time when you see a Putin, you, you know, that it's moving, seems to be not just here, but everywhere. What I would like to talk about, though, is why this particular moment matters so much. And I think what Putin has shown is the hollowness of autocracy that Biden pointed out a year ago. And I can talk about that till the cows come home. You know, another thing, though, that uh, President Biden has talked about is how democracies compete uh, with autocracies. You know, can, can we demonstrate that we do? But you see this historical moment now where uh, obviously there's authoritarian movement uh, here in the United States. What's your thinking on where we are today? And, you know, is there is there a way out of it? As somebody who studies the way politics works, this is a really interesting moment. And I'm going to divorce myself here from actually being a citizen who is embedded in it, because that, of course, you know, you can't sleep at night. But as somebody who studies this, one of the things that people who care about democracy point to is the fact that you need to have a minimum of two viable political parties in order to have a successful mm -hmm. country. And one of the things that's really interesting about this particular moment with Vladimir Putin is that, of course, when uh, Biden took office, he made a number of speeches in which he talked about how Vladimir Putin and um, Xi Jinping from China both had, had suggested that uh, democracy or liberal democracy was no longer viable because it couldn't pivot as quickly as autocracy could in the modern era when we had social media and we had the need to do things very quickly, that you needed to have essentially a strong man in control because democracies were too slow and too sloppy. And what has been really interesting about the way things have played out between Ukraine and Russia is, of course, that in this moment, democracies are the ones that are pivoting really quickly and moving really quickly. And it is the strongman autocracies that are not able to do that. And the reason I just gave you that long setup was because one of the reasons that uh, scholars of democracy believe you have to have at least two political parties is because you need oversight. You need somebody saying, hey, wait, you know, George over there is corrupt. And, and having there be a political backlash for that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have seen with what appears to be the hollowness of Vladimir Putin's military is that on paper, it's supposed to be extraordinarily powerful, but the reality appears to be that the corruption within the country has skimmed a lot of the money that was supposed to be developing that military off. There was not somebody conducting oversight because of the fact it was a one-party state. Now, that, that idea that there is no oversight and, and as a result of the lack of oversight, there has been um, weakness, has been one aspect of how these this moment is playing out between autocracy 
history and democracy. The other, of course, is that very famously, autocrats stopped listening to other people. First, they're willing to listen to people. That's how they rise. But they get very leery of having anybody contradict their own ideas. They're afraid it's going to show weakness. And so they purge their inner circles of people who have new ideas. That means that they can often work themselves into a dead end, which again, it appears that Vladimir Putin has done ideologically in his belief that he was going to be able to launch this war and win it very quickly. So in this moment when autocracy is showing up its hollowness, its weakness, to have Biden and uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken articulating why democracies are in fact more powerful is really important. What is the, the piece that is missing for me right now is the recognition here at home domestically that this is really the same story, that this is something that Americans at home need to understand, that we don't in fact want to have a one-party country, which is what the Republican Party is currently trying to do especially in the 19 states that have dramatically suppressed the vote and have arranged their electoral systems in such a way that they will automatically return Republicans, uh, which they've done since the 2020 election. We've done that before. That's what the American South looked like between about 1876 and 1965. And it was exactly what you would expect. It was corrupt. There was not equality before the law. It was a, it turned the South into a backwater. And the fact that Americans don't quite seem to be seeing that we are looking at the same thing at home and it's time really to throw our weight behind democracy here at home, quite literally by insisting on a Voting Rights Act and by getting rid of these laws in those 19 states. Um, I, I don't quite see why there is a disconnect. And that's one of the things that I keep trying to address again and again and again in my nightly writings. Well, that's sort of what I'm asking. Is there any, I mean, we, we're such, you know, this, the polarization, it's like fever pitch. People go to their corners as soon as they hear the word blue or red. Um, is is there any precedence for break ha, the, 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 a fever like this and it breaking in the United States? I mean, what, or, or was that what led to the Civil War? Is there a way to avoid that? I mean, I, I, I'm just trying to get some sense from you through our history has there been quite a movement where a moment where the fever was sort of a, a you know polarization was this fierce and if that was the civil war you know right before the civil war it, you know uh we're obviously a different country in terms of it's not it's not just in states it's it, it, it's uh people uh arguing the you know their polarized views uh uh everywhere but is there any precedent other than the, you know, the only time I can think of is Civil War. I was wondering if there was something else. Curiously, yes. This is not all that unusual in American history. We've had it happen at least three times pretty dramatically. The first is, of course, the 1850s that you're talking about that led to the Civil War. We also had a very similar polarization in the 1880s and the 1890s. And we also had, a, again, a similar polarization in the 1920s. Now, all of those fevers broke. And what's interesting about the breakage of those fevers is that they all had similar patterns. One is that the um, stacking of our economy in such a way that basically all the money went to the people at the very top and they tried to shut everybody else out of that system, finally hurt enough people badly enough that they were willing to listen to the idea that the people that they had seen as being the, the great 
uh, job creators in the country were maybe not all that great. So a lot of people begin to be hurt. But then crucially in each period, there was somebody, some lawmaker who stood up and started to articulate the values of democracy. Now, interestingly enough, in the 1850s, of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln signs on with the fledgling Republican Party, and he begins to articulate that set of values. Uh, in the, the, the middle of the 1890s and then in the 19 aughts, you have Teddy Roosevelt, who is articulating those same values about his own party, about members of his own party. Those ideas actually came from Grover Cleveland. Everybody forgets that because Grover Cleveland sort of gets written out of history by a number of Republican historians. But Teddy Roosevelt picks those ideas up and then in the 20th century, of course, it's FDR, who uh, a Democrat who mm -hmm. turns against the, the oligarchs of the time. And in each of these periods, by the way, people use the word oligarchs and use the word oligarchy, which was a real surprise to me when I started really hammering down on that idea, especially in the 1850s. They're talking about oligarchs and oligarchy. Um, so in each of those periods, you had discontented, disaffected people who began to rally around leaders who talked about basic fairness and the concepts of American democracy. So one of the things that I look for when I look at the, the idea of this fever breaking is finding people who are articulating that message. Curiously, uh, Joe Biden is articulating that, that message, but there's so much noise in our political system right now, he often just doesn't get any kind of coverage. So, for example, I, I'm, I've sort of lost track of what day it is, but within the last 10 days anyway, he gave a major speech on voting rights. I never saw it referenced anywhere, and that's what I read. Um, so the, the idea of people articulating the values that we as a country hold dear are crucially important. Right now, I, I, I have not seen one individual coming forward to do that. Yeah, so that's the, the, the well, but politics abhors a vacuum, so hopefully uh, someone will step in. I mean, I'm one of those, uh, like you, we tend to get lucky. Somebody um, at the right moment steps in to the void and, uh, uh, and the country moves on and is better for it. So, uh, I think I, I'm one who looks at all the possibilities out there and thinks somebody new is going to emerge, uh, uh, you know, in, in the next few years, hopefully. Well, there is a new idea out there. And this has been something that I've been watching since, um, what year are we in? It's 2022, 2000, the, the midterm elections of 2018, because there was a new kind of conception of American democracy in that moment, uh, articulated by people like Stacey Abrams and um, by a number of the people, the women especially, running for office. And yeah. they were articulating a vision of America that was not based on uh, a male breadwinner or a hetero heteronormative nuclear family, like FDR had been, like Teddy Roosevelt had been, certainly like Abraham Lincoln assumed he didn't even have to articulate it in that era. They were talking about communities and not children. I mean, they were talking about children in the communities, but not their own children. They were talking about working together as groups of people. Stacey Abrams had a wonderful ad in which she had a bunch of people around a table and they were, you know, sort of a family, a whole group of people of many different ages and many different relationships. And the idea that this was just a society that took care of its own. And then you had um, Tammy Duckworth also talked about her squad in Iraq 
that um, that that saved her life. There were a number of places where people were articulating the idea of protecting a community based around children, and that's something that, by the way, I was trying to ask. Uh, President Biden about when I asked about why he focused on the Build Back Better plan, because that's in the Build Back Better plan. And that idea of shifting our concept of American democracy away from the heteronormative nuclear family, which has always been a construct, it's never really reflected reality, but now we're articulating something new because of the, the, the new female voices and voices of color, um, I think is incredibly exciting. And I'm I'm expecting that there will be a, a, a new coalescence or a coalition around that kind of an idea. The one thing your newsletter does is you you try to point out stories that are flying under the radar, you know, especially drowned out now because of Ukraine. Uh, things like that we've talked about Rick Scott's uh, tax proposals and his twelve point plan. Um, so I just want to see is there something out there that are that's under the radar that that, that our listeners should be aware of that, that you, you want to flag? Well, it's funny you say that because somebody asked me that just yesterday. So I'm actually sitting here at my desk next to a series of statistics. And I want to emphasize that I'm a historian. I'm not a journalist. So when I look at the news, what I'm really trying to do is figure out what's going to be important in 100 years. So a lot of stuff I don't bother to pay any attention to because we know how the vote's going to come out. So I don't have to listen to people screaming at each other because at the end of the day, the history books are just going to say yes or no. They're not going to say so-and-so was a jerk today. But the story that I find mind-boggling that we are not paying attention to, aside from the ones we talked about, voting rights and the, the uh, renaissance of the idea of states' rights, for example, and all the many things going on that people are talking about, is the fact that um, we are in, I think, a real crisis for American women. And what I mean by that is many people know that about 1.8 to 2 million American women left the workforce during the pandemic and they have not returned. And they have not returned, I mean, many of them have, but they have not all returned, uh, many of them because of childcare. The recognition that childcare is a crippling demand on especially American women is something that is absolutely should be front and center. It affects every single person's life, even if you are not a caregiver. And that's something that is flying under the radar screen. But the other piece of that, of course, is that mothers especially, and also nurses and teachers who are what we know of as pink collar workers are under enormous stress and strain because of the pandemic. But here's the kicker on this. One of the things that it kills me does not show up in the newspapers virtually ever, and I suspect that you're gonna look surprised when I say this, is that 54% of what we know of in America as mass shootings between 2009 and 2018 were part of domestic violence. A mass shooting is three people killed. Uh, three or more people killed. 54% of those mass shootings were a reflection of domestic violence. And, and when we talk about mass shootings, which to my mind, we don't necessarily do enough anyway, everybody sort of thinks of the big uh, ideas of strangers going into a movie theater or whatever. Half of them are domestic violence. So when more than half, I'm sorry, 54% according to the CDC. So if you think about what our society is going to look like to a historian in 100 years, what is the first thing they're going to say is, hey, what are people dying of? Oh, they're dying of COVID. They're dying of this. Oh, look, 54% of mass shootings are a reflection of 
intimate partner violence. And it is nowhere in the newspapers. And that's the blind spot that I just, I, I just can't imagine that we are not looking at it. And, and we're not. Heather, well, thanks for, for getting us focused on that. I mean, uh, that's pretty important. And uh, I think it gives people a reason to uh, think about getting, you know, reading your newsletter on a daily basis like I do, because it's this kind of, uh, uh, I think, insight and that historical perspective. It's so, uh, so refreshing, so different, I think, and, and, and really focused on what matters. So thank you for, for being with us. I, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to the trip, That Trippy Show. You can find Heather's work, including her newsletter and podcast at heathercoxrichardson.substack.com or follow her on Twitter at HC underscore Richardson. We'll link to both of those in our show notes. Heather, anywhere else our, our listeners can find your work? Uh, lots of people find me on Facebook, although since I refuse advertising, it's always dicey whether or not my stuff will actually show up in someone's feed. But that's where all this got started. Well, we'll look for you there, too. We'll be back next week. And of course, please subscribe to That Trippy Show. Leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And you can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question in the review on iTunes. Alex has, shocker, gotten through so many lately that we need more. So please send them in. Uh, You know what to do. Heather, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, I'm glad we finally got it done. See you all next time. Bye.